Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the only reason a lot of people are tuning in these days is to know what Danny Moses' record. So let's get that out of the way real quick. 28 and 4. Now, I'm big on reducing fractions. So 28 and 4 means 28 out of 32, which means 14 out of 16, which means 7 out of 8, which means 87.5% accuracy, Danny Moses. Three games to go. I will pick these two this week and then obviously what I think will be the Super Bowl. So, yeah, I'm ready, guys. I love it. Listening, by the way, I know you know this. You're listening to the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dan Nathan, and the aforementioned Danny Moses. Crazy week for the markets. Market sell-off, Fed, earnings. We're going to walk through everything that's transpired. By the way, we're going off the tape in a little while with Victor Jones from Tasty Trade. He's going to break down some of this volatility. And later, Spencer Jacob from the Wall Street Journal. He's out with a new book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Now, what was that movie, Dan Nathan, the movie about toys, stories, and stories about toys? Yeah, it was called Toy Story. Toy Story, right. And there was, amongst the many shitty songs in that movie, You Have a Friend in Me, right? Isn't that the song in that movie, Dan? Yeah. You have a friend in me. Well, guess what, Danny Moses? The market no longer has a friend in. And I know you know the answer. The market no longer has a friend in the form of the Federal Reserve. And for all you people out there that thought that Fed was going to be a little more dovish during this testimony, guess what? R-O-N-G wrong, Danny. Wow, I can't believe you just did R-O-N-G wrong. Did you know what I was going to talk about today? No, please tell me. Arthur Fonzarelli, <laughs> got to be one of your childhood heroes, who was unable to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, right? What were the two things he couldn't say? That's right. Powell basically did that yesterday. He's like, inflation is larger and longer lasting than anticipated, and price increases have spread now to goods and services outside of what they had thought. So definitely side of the supply chain. We know that's an issue he can't control, but it's certainly behind the eight ball, and certainly did not exude confidence. What's really interesting is he didn't really want to address the balance sheet runoff issue. He said they will be addressing it in the future after they start to raise rates. But he made a comment that he will basically maintain treasuries and let mortgage-backed securities run off. One of the principles they're now going to be used to guiding balance sheet runoff, which I thought was interesting, which we'll talk about later in the show, I think it's what's having an impact on certain parts of the yield curve and making it very, very volatile because he sent a lot of mixed messages to the market but did not exude confidence. Hey, so Guy Adami, a uh, past guest, David Rosenberg, Rosenberg Research. He's at Econ Guy Rosie, which I think is a great handle for him on Twitter. He tweeted out this this morning, Guy. This is this Thursday. Powell has the blinders on. He had the temerity, that is a Guy Adami word, to say yesterday that the labor market is much, much stronger than it was in late 2015. Tell me where the 14 million Americans not at work due to COVID-19 back then. Oh, and that strong job market, Jay, question mark. 
So here's the deal. They keep solving to stable prices. Isn't that their due mandate and full employment guy? But you think, and you've said this for years, that their dual mandate at some point shifted. No, stop, stop, stop. Strong employment and stable prices. Bullshit. First of all, stable prices, not in the form of bond yields over the last couple of years, number one. Their dual mandate is, I'm convinced, make sure the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 goes up. But guess what, Danny Moses? They might be getting away from that. About time, I say. I didn't want to believe this. One of you guys brought this up a couple months ago. The fact that Kaplan, Rosengren, Clarida, they all had the issues with the trading ahead of the markets and so forth. It's almost like he's gone out of his way to not care about the stock market potentially. And so one of the questions that came up yesterday was basically, are you watching the stock market? Are you watching this risk assets? And he said, yeah, but we like that it's pricing in kind of what we're going to be doing. He really wouldn't address it. But what he did say over and over again, which we talked about last year, forget about supply chain, wages, wages, wages. He mentioned, I want to say five or six times. And I think that's what's got him this wage spiral potential that's going on. And what's interesting in the quarters which you've seen are getting reported. So there are some companies out there that are reporting very good quarters out there. What are they doing? They're raising prices. So they're maintaining their margin. That means they're passing it on to the consumer. So I think he's starting to see these things out there. So he keeps saying he's going to be nimble. He said the word nimble like three or four times also. So he will adjust on the fly. I still stand by the fact that I think it's two to three rate hikes and done. If he has to deal with a little bit higher inflation, I think he's going to have to because you're already seeing how the market's going to react to what he has planned potentially. So I think it'll go off the rails for sure. I don't think they're as slave to the market as they were four years ago. Now, maybe that will change and maybe I'm being naive, but I think clearly they're concerned, correctly so, by the way, is inflation and there's a midterm election coming up and you watch any of the news shows and every night they lead with inflation under the Biden administration. And I got to tell you, people are pissed off. Now, I'm not putting this at the foot of the Biden administration. The seeds for this were sown long before he was president, quite frankly. I mean, it's been going on for decades. And listen, the Trump administration threw some gas on that fire. Now it's coming home to roost. But the fact that they're now focused on inflation is really important to me. And if the market goes down on the back of it, so be it, Danny. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. Trump cared about the stock market. We know that was one of the things he looked at as an affirmation of things that he was doing regulatory-wise. Biden is now focused on inflation. And maybe he should be focusing a little bit more on the stock market. I don't know. I don't think that should be the Fed's mandate. I'm just saying what's common sense here. So I think you're seeing two different presidencies address two different issues. One was obsessed with the stock market. One is obsessed with inflation. Powell's in a very, very difficult spot. I'm sure he wish he could go back two weeks ago and maybe not put himself for another term of this because it looked like it's really going to be a rocky road. To Guy's point, though, the Trump administration, what did they do? They lowered corporate tax rates, and they did that really with a thought that would help the stock market. So they borrowed a trillion and a half dollars from the future, and they just gave it to corporations. And then what did they do? They bought their stock back, which ripped the stock market. I think from 2018 and 2019, I think corporate buybacks in the U.S. literally amounted to one and a half trillion dollars, the exact amount of the tax cut. And then what did they also do? They started a trade war. So we started seeing some crazy price action, a whole host of different inputs, and really started to get this kind of deglobalization thing going, which actually 
was a horrible precursor when you think about the supply chain disruptions that we've had during the pandemic. So yeah, this has been going on for five or six years. And again, I'm not trying to be political. This is not really about the Biden administration, but I actually think they're doing the right thing to be focused on it because this is both sides of the aisle that people are very concerned about higher prices. This is where I differ with you guys a little bit. I actually think the Fed has gotten themselves very turned around. I think the whole notion of them being nimble is smart right now with the stock market, the S&P is down about 10% from its highs, down about 9.5% on the year. The NASDAQ's down about 15%. And at the end of the day, when we have CPI readings at 40-year highs and we see some of these supply chain disruptions that are clearly going to abate, at some point in the not-so-distant future, inflation is going to be just less of an issue. To me, if the stock market starts to go lower and they leave themselves some room, at least just to get a more dovish if they have to, and I'm with you, Danny, I don't think they get anywhere near four rate hikes this year. I think they have to leave themselves a little room because if the stock market's down 20% on the year, they're going to change their tune. It's that simple. Listen, I'm thrilled they're not paying attention to the stock market. I hope that continues to be the case. They need to get these prices under control. It's just going to be a rough burn back through the atmosphere here for sure. But let's talk about what is happening and what does affect the consumer that is not related necessarily to the stock market. So oil, we're hovering between $88 and $90, I believe, today on West Texas. The two-year yields have now exploded higher. At one point today, I believe they hit 120 That has major implications. Again, on an absolute level, the 10-year chart, it's a joke how low it is. But from where you're coming from, it's a shock to the system. And the amount of leverage that's in the system, the amount of financial products that are built upon that. And I think what the Fed is underestimating, and I think where they want to be nimble and where they're giving themselves optionality, and Guy talks about it all the time in the repo markets, et cetera, is how well are the markets going to function if the Fed does raise two, three times and there's a little bit of calamity in the fixed income markets? Let's see what happens when that happens. And I think they adjust on the fly. So listen, I think we're overshooting now to the other side. Inflation, by definition, at some point does come down. It has to over time. When that will be, I don't know. But they undershot. I guarantee they overshoot, Dan. And you've been saying that for a while. Well, we'll see. But the other thing that is clearly overshooting right now is you mentioned it, the price of energy. Crude oil is a story again. And now a lot of people are starting to talk about it. We mentioned the OIH and all the different things we do. We mentioned it here in OTT. You're talking about an OIH that at its trough was 175 seemingly just a month or so ago. It topped out over 230 earlier this week. And now we're back at that 225 top end of the range. But Oil's a real story here, and the Fed can do whatever they want, in my opinion. They could hike rates, but in my opinion, I think that oil genie is out of the bottle, and I say it all the time, and I'm not the only one that says it. The only cure for higher prices in commodities are higher prices, and we're going to find out if that, in fact, is the case, Dan Nathan. I have no ax here. I look at the price of crude and I look at the way it's been gyrating over the last year and it's made a series of new highs, but it's also had increasingly larger drawdowns from those highs. About nine or 10 months ago, we had a 20% drawdown. Then we had a 25% drawdown. So they're getting bigger, but as the price is expanding. And so to your point, Guy, at some point, there'll be some headline that probably mitigates some of these gains here a little bit. And just, again, you saw that China is easing. That's not a great sign. It's going to take a while for some of the rate cuts that they've just put in place to seep into the market. I just think the global economy is going to have fits and starts the way it reflates. And higher crude is not something that if we're battling inflation, I think 
can persist. And, and the last point I'll just make is that with higher rates, we're also seeing a dollar that's been strengthening. It did come in a little bit, but I'm looking at the Dixie guys at 97 a quarter right now. And the last time the Fed was in a rate hiking cycle when they had just stopped their QE back in 14, 15, and 16, crude oil went down 65% from its highs. So stronger dollar, higher rates to me, and maybe I'm a, just a big dummy here, I suspect that we're seeing a high in crude, and I don't think we're going to see $100 crude anytime soon. Dan, I think you have to acknowledge the situation and geopolitical risks which are out there. Ukraine is obvious, but then post-Olympics, people are concerned about China and Taiwan. So there is geopolitical concern that can always drive oil prices higher. So I think, to your point, that's part of it. If that comes and goes, certainly that could add fuel to the fire, no pun intended, on the drop if the economy does slow down and those things calm down a little bit for sure. But Gold certainly has round-tripped here from the 1800 level, 1850, again, back to around 1800 as we sit here. The one thing that gold, I feel like, is going to be paired to now is the stock market. Why do I say that? What makes the stock market go up from here would be a more dovish Fed. I think people want to see a potential blink. If that were to happen, I think gold gets its footing. But Gold's dead. Guys, I'm just telling you, you guys sucked me in. I've been listening to you guys for months and months and months, and you guys have made some great cases why gold should go higher. And I was looking at it from a vol perspective. The options market looked really cheap. And if things were going to go haywire, then gold should work. And it is not. It just got creamed over the last couple of days, and I'm getting murdered. The last time we had the conversation about that was gold versus Bitcoin, which I said people at me and they did. You know where that was at the time? Bitcoin was 55000 and gold, well, I want to say, was 1770 So if you want to look at those two together, that's how the conversation began on this show was, what would you rather own? And I said, I would own both. Danny's getting exercised. By the way, whose bike is that? It's not a bike. It's a chopper. Whose chopper is that? It's Ned's. Who's Ned? Ned's dead, baby. This whole thing just made me think of when Dan went on dead D-E-D. I mean, Ned's dead, baby. Gold ain't dead, but I'm telling you, I just want to say I will go to the mattresses on this one. Gold will be a story, and it's coming to a theater near you. Hey, Dan, before we get to the football picks, let's do this, all right? You're down 10 large. Why don't you, since you seem to be confident on this, I bet gold hits 1,900 before it hits 1,700. You can pick the future that you want to use. I'll go five dimes on that that we hit 1,900 before 1,700. Let's go. Ready? We can set that aside. It'll be a year-long bet, or maybe it'll be a month-long bet. What do you think? All right, Danny boy, you're done. Five dimes. 1,700 before 1,900. I got a price of 1,793. You're spotting me a few bucks here. What are we looking at? Like, if it trades because Russia, it goes for one second, it just has to touch 1,900 or touch 1,700. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, just a little kiss, as they say in the biz. We used to call those knockouts or knock-ins, Dan. You probably traded those back in the day at SAC Capital. Yeah, we were knocking a lot of stuff out back then. All right, let's shift gears here a little bit. One of the things that was really interesting, we came into this week, and the Fed was obviously top of mind. I don't think anyone thought there were going to be any big surprises. And for the most part, there weren't, but there was a lot of volatility around it. The flip side of that is we're also focused on tech earnings. And we knew that we had Microsoft on Tuesday. And that stock, after they reported and before they gave guidance, was trading down 5% in the aftermarket. Then they gave guidance, and people felt pretty good about the current quarter guidance, and the stock rallied a little bit. So it's trading around $300. Again, we also talked about Microsoft a couple weeks ago when they made a $70 billion bid for Activision. 
But we're seeing some push and pull here, guys, with tech. Intel's getting murdered right now. They gave really bad guidance. ServiceNow, a $100 billion SaaS company, is up 10% as we're talking because they gave good guidance. So there's a little bit for everyone, and I kind of feel like there's a good chance that we get through the rest of earnings season next week. We have Apple tonight, so we're going to know what's going on there. But next week, we have Amazon and Google. Is there a chance we get through this where the big behemoths just cancel each other out a little bit, guy? Clearly, I think that's what a lot of market participants are hoping. The fact that, listen, we'll take two bad ones if we can get two good ones and it evens each other out. And that could be the case. They all could come out and blow numbers out and we're having a much different conversation on the next on the tape. I just don't think we're in that type of paradigm right now. I think companies now are at a point with this Fed now not being your friend to my earlier point where they have to really execute in terms of earnings. So in line is not going to be good enough in this new world. And you know what? That's the way it should be, Danny. Do you remember my James Earl Jones impression about a month ago? No, please do it again, because I love this. It was his birthday recently, by the way. Yeah, he turned 91, actually. You were talking about Arc Asset, and I said, Simba, everything she touches is a short. Well, <laughs> guess what? She touched Tesla. Are we not going to talk about this down 100 bucks today? No, listen, I was waiting to tee you up, so you always jump the gun. There's no foreplay with you. I'm very excited. Anyway, no, but again, we've said before, it's a beauty pageant. You come out, you show your stuff, and you get re-underwritten. If you're not trading on fundamentals to begin with, Microsoft trades on fundamentals, right? ServiceNow, I didn't really look at the numbers. I assume it does trade on some form of fundamentals. Tesla doesn't trade on fundamentals, right? It's a meme stock. It's the greatest meme stock of all time. And it could be at 1200 as easy as it could be at 700 The point, though, is that when people look what they own, no one wanted to be shorted ahead because they're always scared because you get your face ripped off being short. So no one wanted to be there. And look what happened. Ran up into the bell, even ran up on the call last night. But what did they say? They're not producing any of the new vehicles that they said they were going to. They're going to focus on insurance. That's awesome. That's always a good multiple game to do and grow that area. As a matter of fact, Musk made a comment, something like, do you know that if you get safe driving that you can actually get a discount on your insurance? I'm like, yeah, I watch Allstate ads. I watch Flow from Progressive. You kind of get that back at the same time. I mean, there's a human mind that he's building and he's got all this. It's crap. You got your Tesla. It is down 30% from those recent all-time highs. But now, given that guidance that they just get, it's killing all of these EV names. So Rivian is down 10% as we talk, and that's about a $47 billion market cap. Lucid is down 13% as we speak, about a $48 billion market cap. Neo has been getting killed. So is this trade done for a while? If these guys, there was obviously a lot of skepticism about Rivian and Lucid, which weren't even shipping any cars. But if Tesla is not going to be able to deliver the Cybertruck, where the hell it is, is it just kind of take the air out of the whole space? Dan, Freudian slip. I love it. You call Lucid Lucent. That really could be portending something to compare this thing to 99, 2000. Those stocks had already started to crack before Tesla. And we talked about it two weeks ago. Not only had Tesla look expensive relative to the other automakers, it started to really take apart when Rivian and Lucent started to get hit. It wasn't moving. And the reason it wasn't moving is because Pavlonian, no one wanted to be short ahead of the quarter, but now we have the quarter. So the answer is, I think they're all overvalued. None of them trade on fundamentals. They're all trading on out-year growth and so forth. So again, these aren't the stocks, per se, without picking on a name in particular, that you want to be in in general when there's no fundamental reason to buy the dip at any price. So that's kind of where it's going. Speaking of buying dips, Guy. Well, that's what I was going to say. I know where you're going. You're going to go to Bill Ackman. I know exactly. I'm in your head. I am so in your head. So you're in my head here. And when I look at this Netflix chart, so it kissed in late November 700 bucks, Guy. It had that huge breakout. And then right before earnings last week, the stock was just above 500. It got as low as 350 on a very disappointing sub number. 
It's a massive gap. The gap is literally $515 down to $400. Ackman takes a stake. He's bought 3 million shares here. The irony here is that he used to be in that huge war over Herbalife with Carl Icahn. And back then, Carl Icahn was a huge activist in Netflix. So here he is. He's being opportunistic. What do you think here? Because I actually remember on Fast Money a few years ago when Ackman took a stake in Chipotle. You kind of got all behind that. You kind of pounded the table on that. So is he the real deal? Is he going to make this thing fill in the gap to 500? I do. I think his timing is excellent. Now, I will tell you without equivocation, I never thought Netflix would test 350 ever again in its life cycle. You just mentioned it was a $700 stock this time last year, but you see how quickly things are taken out to the woodshed. And this is just illustrative of what we talk about all the time, stairs up, elevator down. But I think this timing is exactly right. So good for him. And I do think at a certain point in the not too distant future, and when I say that, I'm thinking by the summer, we're going to be talking about a Netflix stock that is either side of $500 again, because again, outside of a couple different instances, Reed Hastings has done everything right. Maybe the market was way too ahead of itself. Clearly, given this sell-off, that's the case, but good for Ackman on this one. And as you mentioned, Chipotle Mexican Grill, which by the way, if you want to get me something there, it's a burrito, white rice, no beans, extra chicken, medium salsa, sour cream, and cheese, Danny Moses. Listen, Ackman has a lot of money to put to work, obviously. Stock's down a lot. He can tell a good story. So he goes after it and tries to make some noise. That's great. I saw a funny tweet yesterday. I thought it was actually real for a second that Carl Icahn had rented out an amphitheater somewhere to give his short case on Netflix. It was going to be presenting today, but obviously that wasn't real. But when I saw that, I went back. Why would he do that? And then I saw the Netflix news of what Ackman was doing. So listen, it's probably ripe. He's got a lot of money to put to work. It'll work until it doesn't. And I'm sure he's going to get a boost off in near term. We'll see how the thing plays out longer term. So interestingly, Bill Ackman's labeled an activist, but he's also in many situations where he takes large positions. He just buys it. He doesn't say a word. And then ultimately he gets to a price and he sells it. So one of the things that got me thinking, though, I tweeted this yesterday morning, Wednesday morning before the news of Ackman taking that stake. I was looking at Microsoft's results and specifically the results in digital advertising. And I remember reading a story last week about Amazon's revenues in digital advertising. And so when you think about some of the landscape here, we know that Google and Facebook are $2 trillion gorillas in the room when it comes to digital ads. And I was thinking about Snap and Twitter, which have absolutely gotten murdered. Snap's down 65% since they reported their Q3 earnings in October. Twitter's down 50% from their highs in the last year. So these guys are just getting pushed out. I tweeted that these two companies are going to have to merge. And I just wonder, Twitter has had activists before. Elliot was in there and they essentially got Jack out and they got some board seats. But Snap is one that's really interesting to me because universally, Evan Spiegel, the founder of that company, has kept himself out of a lot of trouble. I think if you think about some of the other tech CEOs that are out there, people think he's a really good product guy. And so I was thinking, man, the combined companies have $12 billion a year or expected this year in ad revenue, $80 billion in combined market cap. They're just not going to be able to compete here. So I'm just curious, do you guys start to think we're going to see People being advantageous here, looking at some of these washed out stories, seeing a lot of value, trying to move some stuff around. Look, in my opinion, where there's smoke, there's fire. And I know the whole Pinterest PayPal thing didn't come to fruition, but there was clearly something there. So to sort of amplify your point, some of these things are now trading at levels. I don't think a lot of these companies envisioned ever going forward. So if you were looking, if you were kicking the tires on Twitter a year ago, you're absolutely taking another look now. And Snap, which was an $83 stock, I think, in the fall, if I'm not mistaken, I might be off, please don't at me, is now trading about $28.5 and is now a market cap 
south of $50 billion. So I absolutely think these names are in play. It doesn't mean their businesses are necessarily better, but if these were targets a year ago, I got to believe they're targets now. Yeah, I would just add one more point is that the logical acquirer of those sort of properties was Google and Facebook. And with all of the regulatory issues that we know could be an overhang, that's not particularly likely, which is one of the reasons why I think Twitter with a new CEO that no one's particularly impressed about and Snap with a CEO that people think is a product visionary in the space, that combination makes a lot of sense. And Guy, I'm glad you brought up Pinterest because again, PayPal Might you see something like that come about again? Danny, what are your thoughts? Because we don't generally see a lot of M&A when things are really ugly. You usually see it at market tops, right? Yeah, you see it at market tops. But with the DOJ stance right now and the feeling in Washington, they're going after some of these big companies. It's hard to see some of these deals potentially getting approved. I'm sure there was a level that there were, and I'm sure they could sell off various assets to get these things through. But I don't think the market is going to give them the benefit of the doubt that this type of M&A can happen on these size companies. These are decent companies, just maybe not valued correctly. It's going to reset, but know what you own here, I guess, is what I'm saying. But it is certainly anything's possible. So I was just in the FLA. People say that I've never said that in my life until just now, but apparently that's what people say when they go to Florida. And I intended to see Danny Moses and we were all geeked up. I was going to take him to Prime Italian, the whole thing. And then he calls me. He's like, I got COVID. So obviously on behalf of the entire on the tape family, Danny, we hope you're feeling better. But I mentioned I'm down there for this Context 365 conference. And there were a lot of people down there, heavy crypto conference this year, for obvious reasons, but I had the opportunity to interview both Michael Saylor from MicroStrategies and Mike Novogratz from Galaxy Digital. By the way, both of those interviews you can find on the Risk Reversal website. Fascinating conversations, but what I came away with is this. Michael Saylor is not going away. He is as steadfast as he's ever been, and Novogratz has been pretty clear. He thought crypto could come off, sell off on the back of a Fed that's now getting more hawkish. He's right, but obviously he still believes in the viability. Danny, I know this exercises you almost as much as Tesla, but what are some of your thoughts? I got to start with, hey, Dan, I was looking, trying to find you on Twitter the other day, and I looked and I see that you changed your profile pic. And so I did a little digging and you bought a chain runner, it appears, runner number 5269. And so I'm like, what is this thing? So I started to look, race, human, all this stuff, nose, droopy, stud piercing, silver stud earrings. I go on OpenSea. And it looks like somebody had purchased this for, I want to say, 1.52 Ethereum some time ago. Dan, tell me that you bought this runner, number 5269, which you're now using on the blockchain on Ethereum that I'm looking at this correctly on OpenSea. Is this correct? That is 100%. And I am a Twitter Blue user. And because I am that, I can actually officially put an NFT in my avatar. So it is my PFP NFT. And I will tell you this, I put that up there the morning that crypto bottomed. And so I was thinking it's going to be the chain runner bottom here, Danny Moses. All right. I just found it fascinating. So you have, there's 10,000 runners, but you're number 5269 and you paid, I'm guessing around $5,000 for it. Is that about the right amount? Ish. Ish. Okay. I just want that out there. So If that gives you any idea, Guy, for what I think about crypto at the time, no, that's fine. So listen, I like Sailor because I think he truly believes in it. So I don't fault people for having passion in what they want to do. Using the entire company's balance sheet to prove his thesis? Not so sure. No one's stopping him. He runs the company. So good luck to him. Listen, there's been a lot of washout in this market. We don't think crypto's not going away, obviously. But when you have these type of moves, it kind of gets rid of the excesses and the leverage that's in the system. And you are seeing little blowups occur. You just saw the SEC turn down another ETF today. 
then they're citing the issues that they find in the stablecoin market, in the background, in the leveraged market, the noted tether in that for this turndown of this ETF. So at least the regulators are watching this. And if you're a crypto enthusiast, that's a good thing. You don't want to have this thing to be a bad name for everybody else. So anyway, it's here to stay. I recognize that. I do not own it, obviously. So Guy, I heard the interview was fantastic. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm going to get on that for sure. It was fun. And listen, I know Dan has some comments, but there's now people getting into leveraged Bitcoin. And some of the comments I see, these leveraged bets are like driving 100 miles an hour on the interstate blindfolded, which may be something you did in your youth, Danny Moses, but not something you want to be doing right now. No, for sure. Listen, they haven't even figured out what to do with these products. And we know that Gensler sees these things as securities for the most part. Therefore, it falls under his peer review. To put leverage on it, he's already stated he doesn't want to see that. So it's not going to end well. People that are using these lending products with crypto, that's the nightmare, promising these large returns. The only way that they can give you those type of returns is with the leverage. So when the asset goes down, it's margin call time, and it exacerbates, I think, the move down in Bitcoin. I think that's why you see such volatility there. So wipe out the weak hands, and the people that want it for the long haul should be buying opportunities for them, I guess, Dan. That's one of the bare cases of what lies beneath these stable coins. And we've asked the question, guys, on the podcast, let's be clear, about a lot of crypto people over the last year. What is the risk to these stable coins? Because they don't seem to be dollar for dollar. And that's kind of your point, Danny, right? So if you're going to add yield, you got to have some product underneath it that gives you the ability to do that. But no one's been able to really prove that tether, tether, tether. And we haven't really seen anything. And I'm not telling you, I don't mean to be glib about it by any means. I'll just say this. This week, the stock market, it feels like it's one step forward, two steps back. Crypto obviously got killed. It felt capitulatory earlier in the week. Before I bought any stocks on this drawdown, I bought Ethereum and I bought Solana. And to me, I'm actually thinking about them as maybe stocks or high risk stocks in a portfolio a little bit. And I just think the potential for these to have outsized returns to really any stock that I see on my fact set screen is just the thing that I'm kind of leaning into right now in this volatility. So that's kind of my play near term. I like ETH. I like Solana. I don't love the stock market still. But one of the things you have to love is Danny Moses. As I mentioned earlier, 87.5% in this season in the league where they play for pay, it's remarkable. By the way, we're going to be talking with the coach and Ned Michaels, I believe, for their podcast, the Breaking Even. So we're going to get into conversations about all of this. But as we sit here right now, Danny Moses, on the eve of now the AFC Championship game and the NFC Championship game, please download to us your picks in the aforementioned league where they play to pay. What a week last week with those four games were incredible. Probably one of the best football games ever was the Bills-Chiefs game. I think this is not a week for the underdogs like most of those games were last week. I think this is actually a week for the favorites. So let's look at these two games. The first game is Chiefs-Bengals, right? They played actually in week 17. The Bengals beat them 34-31. to That's the only loss the Chiefs have had since week 7. The Bengals have obviously been playing very well, and they're scrappy. But I do believe the Chiefs are going to be too strong for them. And kind of like last year's AFC Championship game where Josh Allen, I think they lost, I want to say, 38-20, to 20, I believe, in the AFC Championship. I think that's a very similar score. I'm going to take the Chiefs minus seven and home and get to the Bengals. Do I think the Bengals have the ability to backdoor me? What I mean by that, 10-point game, 13-point game with two minutes left, and they come down and score because Jamar Chase is that good? Yes, but I think the Chiefs are going to get it done, so I like them in the early game. The second game is teams that have met twice this year, of which the Niners have won both times. And most recently in week 18, where the 49ers came back to beat the Rams late in overtime, actually. And I think right now the Rams are playing as well as anybody in football. 
I like the Rams. The line is three and a half. I like laying that. You can buy your half point and pay a little bit more vigorous if you want to be safe and go minus three. But I think these two favorites cover. I think the Rams are going to win this game. I think it's going to be Rams chief in the Super Bowl. And I think the Rams win the Super Bowl at home in SoFi Stadium. So I think it's going to be a great weekend of football. But Dan, Nathan, talk to me. Yeah, I got nothing. You're 28 and four, and I'm down 10 dimes taking the other side of you like an idiot. I'm not going against that. I actually want to enjoy the games this weekend rather than betting against you and you just kind of running up the score on me. So good luck, Danny Moses, and good luck to everyone following you. We are going to do a special drop with Ned Michaels and the coach, Jonathan Coachman, breaking even squad. Coachman is a handicapper, Danny boy. I'll tell you what, Dan, one of my friends called me last week because he went to college with me. He knows my history of gambling. He goes, you know what? I'm going to equate this to Danny. I said, what? He goes, the rule of 10,000 hours. My buddy Chaz, he goes, you've spent so much time. Maybe you finally reached the point. I go, yeah, it's going to end next year. Don't worry. So believe me, I got people rooting against me at the same time. But what coach will do is coach will give these prop picks over, under, and yards. I'm sure I'll come up with some interesting things that make the game a lot more interesting than just betting the spread. So there's other ways to gamble. So we'll get that from them is for sure. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're just an armchair quarterback gambler degenerate, but you're 28 and four. Why would I take the other side of that? So that will drop Saturday morning in the on the tape feed. Look for it. Nobody should be taking the other side of Danny Moses. Everybody should be listening to on the tape. And oh, by the way, when we get back, Victor Jones and Spencer Jacob. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Victor Jones is the CEO of Doe, an investing app with commission-free stock trading. He also co-hosts Jones and Grace and Hear Me Out on the Tasty Trade Network and serves as Tasty Trade's head of global strategy. He is a former director of trading operations at TD Ameritrade. Victor, it's so great to have you back. We're thrilled that you decided to join us again. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. We're in the waiting game. Final month of my wife's pregnancy. We got a baby girl on the way. And to make matters worse, Guy, we bought and tried to renovate a house in the last final month. So I'm at an Airbnb. But I'm just appreciative that in this type of market, I could be a homeowner because that's a difficult proposition for a lot of people. So you said to yourself, listen, our lives are really complicated. How can we make our lives more complicated now in a time when supply chains are down and renovations going to take three times as long? He said, why don't we renovate the house, son? <laughs> That's exactly right. Victor, is this your first child? It's my second. So we got a two-year-old boy. So this will be my first girl. Well, congratulations. So, you know, Victor, you put out a tweet a couple of weeks ago, and I meant to reach out, but I knew you were going to be on with us. And it was around the time that we, on Fast Money, had our 15, one five-year anniversary. And you put something really thoughtful out, the impact the show had on you as a very young man. Can you speak to that? Well, one, I want to say... 
congratulations to you guys going 15. As great as you guys are, I wonder, had you not had Melissa Lee carrying you guys throughout the back half of that 15, would you still be on? Let's not make this all goody-goody. I remember watching that show at 20, 21 years old when you guys launched it, and it was really impactful because up until that point, a lot of the stuff that you would look on and you would sort of see the same type of profile and the same type of discussions. And it wasn't interesting and it certainly wasn't geared to somebody who maybe wanted to approach a more active lifestyle towards trading and investing. And you guys spoke to that. You were speaking to an audience that hadn't been spoken to before and you were doing it in a different way. And I feel like whether you know it or not, those images that people see, if they can relate to them in some way, if you're talking to them when nobody's been talking to them, you help to bring in new participation. You help to inform a new outlook on markets. As you guys celebrated your 15, I wanted you to know that I was one of those guys looking up from Omaha, Nebraska. I'd never seen a trading floor before, but I had dreams and ambitions of doing something in the industry. And I saw you guys, and it was basically like a sports center, faster format. You're talking about how to manage risk different types of positions. And I just really appreciate that. Wanted you guys to know. Victor, you did do something in the industry and it's pretty important. Not only are you an active market participant, but you're also an educator. Doe is a tasty trade company. And just so you know, the DNA of tasty trade, I go back with it, man. I started doing CNBC, doing options action, Tom Sosnoff, and you were at TD back in the day, but they sponsored options action. And for me, it was really interesting as an institutional trader and somebody who worked at hedge funds for the first, let's say, 10 years of my career. This gave me an opportunity to really get in the psyche of retail investors and also with a product that's near and dear to your heart with options. And so on this episode that you're going to appear, we have Spencer Jacob from the Wall Street Journal just wrote a book about this whole Reddit GameStop affair. What's your sense here? When we first met last year, this was a retail-driven frenzy, but retail also have a lot more tools than they did when you started out in the business or when we started Options Action in 2009. How have they navigated this whole market over the last year where we had literally, I think we're going to say, a bubble inflate and then pop, and we're in the process of a popping right now? Probably depends on what type of retail trader. Is it somebody who was around prior to the pandemic? or somebody who maybe one of the 25 million new participants that got introduced to markets over the last couple of years. If you're around beforehand, perhaps you're able to maybe anchor expectations. You go through a couple of years, I think from the pandemic lows, the NASDAQ was up two out of every three days. Those are the outliers. The years where we have this 65% up from the lows type years, those are the outliers. And if you can remain disciplined you're not worrying about the memes that are being posted and you're not gravitating towards language like stocks only go up, everything's going to the moon, money printer goes burr. If you're not internalizing that as gospel, probably you did okay. Maybe you traded some of these individual names, you took some risk on one side or the other. I think it was perhaps a painful lesson for others. If you were in a place where you weren't hearing those messages of risk and discipline, capital allocation, this became a really expensive lesson because you think you're in some war against some short seller out there. And the reality is, if you get outlier moves to the upside and you're in this position where you just think things continually go up no matter what happens, and you're not necessarily informed on the macro backdrop, the fact that the market was flush with liquidity, the fact that inflation expectations are starting to percolate higher, and that at some point, those inflation expectations will drive some sort of reaction. And that's sort of what we're seeing now. All we can do and all we try to do is try to inform people on what that macro backdrop has been looking like and what the risks out there in the market are. And 
Some people will hear it. Other people are going to pay more expensive tuitions than others. But at the end of the day, volatility is a teacher. Victor, on that point, we just asked Spencer this exact question before. What does it take for these retail investors to understand? You seem to have gotten it early in life, get the joke of the markets, right? To do your own work, to not follow the crowd. And you're saying it's an expensive tuition. I get it. But why does it not resonate with certain people? Is it because they just don't look at the right thing or are they just blinded by the, the fact that they're part of a team or a club, that they're all in this together type thing? It's a good question, Danny. And I think one of the things we talked about on our podcast the other day was, what does it take to teach a new dog new tricks? I don't want to say that you could see this coming, but inflation expectations peaked in October. The two year starts running in October from 30 base points, wherever it was, to where we are now. You have everybody's year-end report saying 2022 is a sort of year of volatility and normalization or return to profitable companies, getting away from high beta. The messages were there, to your point, Danny. Whether or not people heeded those messages or not is the question. And I think part of it might be muscle memory. You go through this period where you were getting to the point where a 2% down move in the marketplace was a dip that you got to buy because you're never going to get this again. The variance in markets had started to come in and people just, that's that muscle memory. You got to buy the dip, you got to buy the dip, you got to buy the dip. And if you've never seen where correlations can go to one and your hot new tech stock doesn't matter anymore, the story that that CEO or those analysts have been telling don't matter anymore. The only thing that ends up mattering when you go through these periods of volatility is how well have you managed risk? How well have you stayed disciplined? How much cash do you have on the sideline? In all fairness, I personally have gone through those scenarios and I had to pay tuition to the marketplace. And these are expensive lessons that you end up learning and developing contrarian mindsets to marketplace, making sure that no matter how good things are going, there's going to be those posts of the person who made X amount of dollars yesterday buying upside calls. But if you don't want to be the guy in the post posting loss porn because you owe your brokers for money because you went unsecured, well, then you're not going to be on the other side either. And I just think that's a message that unfortunately is not sexy. It's not sexy right now to talk about profitable companies and getting away from long duration assets or interest rate. The fact that a year ago, the sexiest thing to talk about was meme stocks. It was on Saturday Night Live. That's an understandable message. We're talking right now about yield curves, slowing growth. We're talking about inflation. We're talking about liquidity and markets. We're talking about things that I think, especially if you came into the market over the last 18 to 24 months, they're difficult concepts to grasp. So even if you want to understand, in some ways, quite frankly, they're hard to get up to speed in that short amount of time to be prepared for arguably what's happening out there, Danny. It's interesting that you just mentioned that meme stocks were on Silent Live, and that was basically the top of GameStop and AMC. And when Elon Musk was on Silent Live in May about Dogecoin, that was the top. And sometimes people make things a lot more complicated than they need to be, especially when there's a big mania. And I think one of the lessons we'll probably learn is doing your own work and having your own process and really understanding what fits your risk parameters and not following a crowd is going to be, I think, the part of that tuition paid as you speak about it. Well, what now? You just highlighted a lot of things that we talk about, Victor. Inflation expectations, rising rates, slowing economy, global reflation that's going to be spotty. We still have supply chain disruptions. 
We've been talking about the concentration among six or seven stocks that make up at their highest 30% of the S&P 500 and about 50% of the NASDAQ 100. Well, we're correcting now. That's happening. And I'm just curious, your thought is that if everything out there, nothing gets potentially much worse than where we are right now from an economic standpoint, do you expect the market to find some footing very soon? And do you expect some of those big names that might have gotten a little expensive, but they're really going to be the winners over the next three to five to 10 years or so? Do you expect money to go back into those? It would be great if Monday is just some magical V bottom. You get this two standard deviation move in the marketplace. Hey, we're repriced. Now we're at an 18, 18 and a half forward PE and everything goes back to normal. In my personal opinion, I'm curious to what you guys think as well. The risk here is that potentially people haven't guided as low as they could. They haven't been as conservative with forward guidance as they potentially could. And if you start to see those messages here, even though the market is at an 18, 19 forward multiple, something like that, which is right at the five-year average, it's very possible that those earnings expectations are perhaps still too elevated. You get a repricing of forward expectations into slowing growth, and then the P can continue to move lower. I think that's the risk. I know that people are talking more about inflation, but it seems like the market is giving Jerome Powell and the Fed credit for what ultimately could play out with inflation this year. And it seems like the risk and eyes are rotating to how slow is slow and how does slow and tight taste in a recipe together. And I think that's still the risk. And I don't know that we've answered that question with a couple of days of volatility. I don't know that we've gotten there yet. The flip side is that concentration risk as well, because the old trick for everybody in this market, Dan, is you treat the FANG stocks like quasi bonds and they aren't. And at some point, you don't treat them like quasi bonds anymore. I don't know what has to happen. Maybe we're in that process right now. You start to see yields get a little bit more interesting and people stop treating those things effectively like bonds and running to them in points of when they're nervous. And I think that is a big risk. I'm really nervous about concentration risk in this marketplace, especially in the backdrop. You've got this antitrust legislation getting bipartisan footing I don't know that that really goes anywhere. Maybe you just feed that to your constituency and it's not really going to have teeth, but all that stuff is percolating in the background. So that makes me nervous as well. Nervous is a good word right now because last week when tech earnings got kicked off with Netflix and the stock was down 25% in one day, you started extrapolating. You're like, what's next? And we already had these other stocks like Snapchat or Twitter that were down 50% in just a matter of months since they last reported. So you bring up the point about guidance, and I think that's really important because stocks that guided for Q4 disappointingly have gotten murdered over the last three months. And so now we're in this period where we just don't know. And I would think that for a lot of these corporates, a lot of these managements, that they kind of have a mulligan right here. Although they're a bit nervous about how the market might react, why would you set expectations higher than they need to be? And I think that's going to be really important. When this episode drops, we're already going to have Apple's results. I think Microsoft was obviously reassuring. That stock was trading, I think, in the aftermarket when they first reported a couple nights ago. 270 or so now it's 300 
But if Apple were to disappoint, if Google were to disappoint, if Facebook were to disappoint on guidance, the stocks are going to get murdered. It's just that simple. So guys made this point on many occasions that when those stocks were growth stocks, they were trading with value multiples. And now we're seeing growth decelerate and they're massive companies. So you have the law of large numbers. And now they traded multiples of 30 and people were talking about that being cheap for a $2 trillion market cap company. So to me, I think we kind of got turned around in the last few years. Even when the markets were down 2 to 3% late last year, it felt horrible. We could see the underbelly was coming. And I feel like every earnings report has been kind of a beauty pageant. And what you're really seeing is a re-underwriting. And these Momo stocks that don't trade on fundamentals, there is no buy point, right, Victor? It's not 40, 30, 20, 10. Where do you buy these? Once they lose their momentum, and that's what we saw or I saw and Dan and Guy had seen, and Victor, you're probably too young, but in 1999 and 2000. You can replace .com with crypto on the margin a little bit. That was the kicker for this cycle here. And so you're seeing that contribute a little bit to the sell-off. But this is going to keep happening. And just look at the dogs of the Dow. They're up for the year. They're up half a percent for the year. The top 10 yielding stocks within the Dow Industrial 30, right? Those are up for the year. And yes, it has Chevron in it. There's some energy. So that's certainly outperforming. But to me, and I think you had said it before, Victor, quality is kind of where you want to be. And maybe people don't want to hear that. But to try to make money quickly in and out is a fool's game. And to watch stocks, just to bring up GameStop as an example, go from 120 to 170 to 130 to 100 to 140 to 90. to All I can think of is every retail investor selling at the low and chasing it back at the high. And a stock that's $100, people have probably lost $200 cumulatively in the last six months. You get my point. So what do you tell the investor who they can't help themselves? It's almost an addiction in the sense of, They're used to trading. They want to trade. They think they can trade their way out of this. And at the end of the day, if they want to truly be an investor, to park it in companies that are quality, research around those, and maybe take a little bit of risk with a little bit less money. We've been trying to simplify it as much as possible. Let's just look at the beta of a company. We don't have to look at balance sheets and all that stuff. Let's just look at math. And if you hold or you've been chasing a company that has a two or a three beta, let's assume returns can be both positive and negative. I know we haven't seen negative returns, but let's just assume returns can be negative. So if you have a potential for a magnification effect on upside return, that same magnification effect is going to play itself out on the downside. And I think it's weird and it's simple, but in many ways, retail is, especially if you've just been participating in narratives and just buying stocks because they're in your Discord chat group, when you're searching for something, Sometimes being able to just talk about the magnification of returns on the upside and downside is an eye-opening conversation enough that people say, okay, maybe I reduce my size. And then you maybe get into the conversations of where do you want to be going forward? And you start to evolve that conversation. Can I ask one question? It's related, but maybe not so related, Danny. Absolutely. So I've heard a lot of this out there, which is people are not quote unquote panicking or they're not selling, they're not rotating. And the message is, well, credit markets are fine. Credit markets are not blowing up. And I wonder in your point of view, is that a reason to quote unquote, not be scared or not take risk off? To me, credit markets blowing up is a bad sign, but it's also probably a sign that help is on the way. You get to the point where credit markets are blowing up. Well, now the Fed's going to perhaps have to take a second look. If credit markets are intact and just assets are coming down, that doesn't mean they can't continue to get lower. So I don't know that I look at credit markets not blowing up as some signal that everything's okay. I wonder what you think about that. Well, I would just separate credit and equity for a moment. Credit's always going to trade ahead of equity or tell you the true health of a company. And I bring that up because just look at 
AMC, they have bonds trading in the low 70s right now, which would tell you any unsecured bond trading in the low 70s, you basically should have an equity that's worthless. We'll just keep it at that. So you can use it as a barometer, right, as a checking point. Obviously, this comes down to one thing, and that's the Federal Reserve. Not only were they buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, as you're well aware, they were buying corporate credit during COVID crisis. So people got trained. And you look at these, I talked about this on the podcast last week, fixed income ETFs are going to be one of the problem children of this entire cycle. You're seeing it already. It exaggerates what I think you're seeing these moving interest rates on a daily basis. Individual corporate credit is in very good shape. So stuff's going to trade at par. It's not a great barometer. However, cost of financing. So you have companies, I'll just bring up a, you know, a name like Con, which sells mattresses and televisions. They make their money on financing. They can sell a television for $500, but if their cost of financing starts to move higher, that's really going to hit them on the profit side. So it's very company specific, but cost of financing is moving higher. Financial conditions are tightening on the margin. And we only have one direction to go. So I would answer that, that leverage in the system, which we have, will be exposed by any type of moving credit, even if it's not about credit worthiness, but it's just about leverage and just credit tightening. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but it's not a perfect storm. So the way we looked at 2006, 7, and 8 was different. The way credit was falling apart there affected the bank's balance sheets at the same time it was affecting consumer balance sheets and was affecting the entire health of the entire financial system. So it was different. I would not use that in this case. What I would go back to is a little bit of combination of 99-2000, where we saw dot-com companies that maybe had some bonds out there. Look at Amazon. We talked about this last week. They did a convert, a desperate convert in 2000. They raised $800 million in Europe. It saved the company. There was so many signs that were going. And so there is no one thing I would look at, but I would start to watch fund flows and things like HYG and some of the bank loan ETFs for signs of stress in the markets. And just a widening of credit spreads will reprice the discount rate and the risk in the market. And the volatility on those HYG and JNK, the volatility in the options market are starting to become elevated. I think they're near 90% range from a ranking of the last year. Victor, you mentioned you're having a baby in a couple months, and obviously, congratulations. But your first child, it seems to me, is exactly the word you just used, volatility, options, all the things that are going on now. And earlier in the week, we saw VIX top out around 39. Still, as we're taping this, it's in the low 30s. And one of the things that I've said, and I'm curious your thoughts about all of this, one of the many unintended consequences of a reckless Federal Reserve, my words, not yours, is it dampened volatility because people got used to selling vol and getting rewarded for it? Well, when that genie's out of the bottle, it's out in a major way. Now you have people chasing their tails. So these downside moves we see in the market are exacerbated because the lower things go, the more people have to sell. And conversely, when it's day like Monday, when the market reverses a thousand Dow points, those same people that were selling down a thousand were buying it unchanged. And that is a really hard cycle to get out of it. We used to call it bad Greek. Doesn't matter what you call it now, but that's clearly going on. Can you speak to that? Yeah, you know, we had a lot of people start to ask us over the last couple of weeks and even going into last week about, hey, what is VIX backwardation? Is that a signal? Should I be buying? Because you did see that at the tail end of last week. I would argue you started to get bubbling volatility in the marketplace, in equities, but the VIX sort of was oddly subdued early in last week, and then you finally got backwardation Thursday, Friday, and it's remained into this week. And people ask us, hey, is that a contrarian signal that everything's okay? Should I be buying here? It's a long-winded way to answer your question. 
guy, but BTFD is ingrained into everybody. And it's true that you do want to buy when assets are cheaper and you don't want to be selling at high. I understand that. But what you're buying, to Danny's earlier point, is really important right now. Just because you're getting something that's cheap doesn't mean it can't be cheaper. So what you're buying on dips is important. And while we've seen elevated vol at 40 and 50, and it seems like, yeah, okay, I want to go in and I want to buy this stuff. Well, during the great financial crisis, you saw VIX backwardation. It lasted for 63 days. And even then, it still took a long period of time before the markets actually found a bottom. So I do think you're seeing interesting signals. But whether you're selling vol or you're buying stocks, it's all one big short vol trade. And to your earlier point, you mentioned about the Fed's liquidity in these markets and how it's drain volatility. Chris Cole has this really, really interesting point that I heard him say. And his point was, as the Fed tries to perhaps remove volatility from equity markets, that volatility can't be destroyed. It can only be displaced or transmuted is the word that he uses. So as we try to mitigate asset volatility, well, wealth disparities are getting wider. And perhaps we're getting social volatility as a kickback instead of asset volatility. So I know that's an aside here, but to your point, just because you're seeing short-term spikes in the VIX does not mean it has to go away right away. It's still as people start repricing these assets, which it seems like they're still doing, it can take a while to find a bottom. And when it happens, all the stories, the narratives, last month's fundamentals and VIX backwardation, that stuff doesn't matter. And you just got to be careful and manage capital here. Victor, we want to be respectful of your time, and we got to have you back for a lot longer than we're doing right now. But we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the Greenwood Project. We talked about it last time you're on, but we have a much larger audience now, and I think it's really important that you get that message out. Yeah, I just want to say that the actual organization, since the last time I was on, they have received tremendous amount of support, millions and millions of dollars in contributions. The organization went from How do we find capital to make sure we get as many students engaged as possible to we've got a lot of capital. How do we make sure we build the right infrastructure to support a massive number of students and expand this project? So I want to say in no small part, thanks to you guys and to all the recognition that this organization has found. And they continue to build out new elements to the program. They've gone from just college interns to high school interns. And there was a point, this is maybe a note for all traders out there. Bavon Joseph is the one who runs this nonprofit. And he called me right as the pandemic is hitting. Because if you can imagine, everybody's shutting down their internships. Everybody's getting rid of them. And he calls me and he says, not exactly sure what the future holds. I got 55 kids each summer that are looking for a job and everybody's shutting these things down. So in no smart part to all the people who choose to contribute, they use some of that capital, bought Chromebooks, things of that nature for some of the interns. And next thing you know, Many different companies are rolling out remote internship opportunities and what looked like a desperate situation turned into an incredible year. They're now expanding into high school students into multiple states as well. So I just want to say thanks for the support and continue to grow. Check out Greenwood Project in Chicago if you'd like to know more about the organization or contribute. Victor, I don't know if you listened to on the tape, but Dan's been betting me on the NFL all season and he owes me 10 large. And instead of him paying me, I've been telling him he's going to start doling it out to various charitable organizations. So I'm hoping part of the one he can donate to this. So, Dan, what do you got? Can we start to delve out some of the 10 dimes which you owe me for good causes? 
Yes, matter of fact, I don't even know if this comes out of my losses here, but Risk Versa Media, we're going to give $5,000 to Greenwood. Great work that you're doing on financial literacy and just really focused on sharing just some of the education that you've been very fortunate to gain over your career. And we just think it's a really important thing. We've had a number of guests on on the tape. We had Adonikin Sue. He's got a great project that he's working on as far as financial literacy. We had Sheldon Day of the Cleveland Browns on OK Computer earlier this week. And he's involved with Amir Carlisle and Richard Sherman on a project that they're doing on financial literacy. And I just think that your focus on this, given how you sit in your profession, it's really important. So we're just really happy to donate and be a part of that. On behalf of the organization, I want to say thank you so much. I did not know that was going to be the case. It's very generous of all of you. So thank you in particular to you, Dan. And I just want to say really quickly to that earlier point you made, Guy, watching you and the team that launched Fast Money, that image, it changed what I wanted to do. It changed my career path. At Greenwood Project, the founders, Bavon Joseph and Alois Joseph, they've always said, you can't be what you can't see, which is saying that's been out there for a while. And I think that's true. What the Greenwood Project tries to do is connect youth in the inner city of Chicago with internships and financial services companies. And when they walk into these companies for the first time, they see trading desks, they see traders. I saw you on a television and it changed what I wanted to do. These young people get the opportunity to see it in real life and imagine themselves on a different path, a different trajectory, and perhaps in a different place that they would see on a day-to-day basis in their community. So I believe it's an amazing mission that two people have dedicated their lives to. And I think the contribution is much appreciated, guys. Well, we're honored to do it, number one. And I'll say this, with all the shit, me personally, I get on Twitter and all that stuff and all the noise What you just said makes all that more than worthwhile. It means the world to me. I hope you understand that. And again, I'm not one to quote the Talmud. I'm Roman Catholic, half Italian, half Sicilian. And this is going to be somewhat not on point entirely, but there's a saying to save one life is as if you've saved the entire world. But that means to me, if you can change somebody's life for the better, you know what? You've done your job. So the fact that you feel that way means the world to me, Victor. Thank you. Again, want to say thank you guys. It's crazy. I was watching you guys on television a few years ago. Now I'm doing a podcast with you. I honestly can't believe it. Danny, I'm a huge fan. Watch a lot of your stuff all the time. I just want to say thanks for the opportunity and the platform, guys. Well, thank you, Victor, for coming on on the tape. And just, you know, while we were talking, I was DMing with uh, Melissa Lee, the host of Fast Money. And I said, when's Victor coming on? She goes, whenever he wants. So, Victor, you got to come on Fast Money very soon, buddy. Listen, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. We hope you'll come back really soon. Thanks, guys. When we come back, Spencer Jacob. Spencer Jacob is an award-winning financial journalist and a former top-rated stock analyst. He edits the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column and previously wrote the Daily Investing column ahead of the tape. His second book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors, will be released next week. Spencer, welcome to On The Tape. Thanks for having me, man. This is really exciting. This is a topic that we've been having on this podcast. We launched the podcast a year ago in January, and this Reddit, Wall Street Bets, GameStop-y thing was going on in a very big way. And as longtime market participants, it was very hard for us not to follow this situation. 
We have a lot of people who are not professionals who come and listen to our podcast or watch our shows, and they're looking for some, I don't know if advice, but just some color on this. Have they seen this sort of thing before? And one of the things that Danny and Guy and I spent a lot of time talking about is there's always been meme stocks, but the mechanisms in which way some of these people can mobilize, that's what's really changed. And I think it's really interesting. You have this book coming out next week. I already have my hands on it. The revolution that wasn't GameStop, Reddit, and the fleecing of small investors. There's just a lot there right in the title here. What interested you about this story? Because we were really interested in it, but it's interesting that this book is coming out now almost on the one-year anniversary of the mania, and it feels like the mania is dying. I've always been interested in manias, panics, crashes. I've always been interested in what makes people buy like crazy and then sell and what's behind it. Let's look at the headlines the day before stocks crashed or the day that they bottomed. And that's pretty interesting. But I learned a lot of new things researching this book, which is the whole social psychology of it. Because you can say that people are always the same, right? Human psychology has not changed for 50,000 years. And that's why the same pattern is repeated again and again. But what is different here is that some of the companies involved, social media companies and the brokers, they learned to push psychological buttons really, really well. And they did it a bit too well. And that set the stage basically for this explosion. Listen, I'm a first time, long time, so really nice to meet you here, Spencer. When I read your columns sometimes, it's equivalent to financial porn, if I wanted to call it something like that, because to me, it stimulates the brain because I am a big behavioral finance person. And I think you can do fundamental analysis with a story, but if you can understand the behavioral finance aspect of certain names, it can really help when to buy and when to sell some securities. And I guess the one thing that's been crazy, and you've written about it, is the people's belief, it's almost a religion, that they're part of something. They want to blame short sellers when it doesn't go well. But at the end of the day, they have no one else to blame but themselves. So how do you convince the retail investor? I talk to people all the time. I try to say, listen, they're like, no, you don't understand. I own AMC at six. I'm not going to sell it here. I'm not going to sell it till it goes to six. I'm like, there's an opportunity cost here. If you sell it at 20, you have a chance to buy something else or do something. So you really can get through to people. Do you find being able to break through to people really understand it and have self-awareness through this? You know what? Very rarely. First of all, I was really surprised just walking around my neighborhood. You'd mention to a neighbor you see sometimes that guy my age, I'm 52, that I'm writing a book and the guy's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm an ape, totally reasonable guy in every other aspect of their lives. And then they're explaining this and then you, okay, explain the logic of it to me. And they can't. I was an analyst for almost 10 years and I've been a journalist for 19. And I think people listened to me more when I was an analyst in terms of trying to talk them out of doing dumb things because I made so much more and wore nice suits. And so they took me a bit more seriously, less so now that I just write for the Wall Street Journal. But it's really, really hard to talk sense into people. It's frustrating. I think people ask you a question even, and then you tell them and they just want to get into an argument with you about it. They're not really looking for advice. No, they're definitely not looking at advice. They're looking to stick it to the man. But what does that even mean, Spencer? Because I'm hard-pressed to understand it. And quite frankly, I understand they feel part of a revolution. But I've said this all along. It's like a Braveheart movie. And there's one person that's telling them, hold the line. And a lot of these people will be sacrificed. And there's one person or a group of people that probably won in a major way. I've thought all along that behind the scenes, there have been hedge funds at work on these Reddit boards and They're the ones pulling the strings, and the little guy winds up getting blasted. And quite frankly, if you look at where AMC is trading as we're taping this, they're getting blasted. That's the ironic thing here, right? You had this movement, and they had two goals. And okay, they're not a monolith, right? Because you went on Wall Street Bets just, I describe a period from 2019 
through the end of the initial squeeze, but just the several days that were the crescendo of this, you went from 2 million to 8 million people. So they're not all the same. They don't all want the same thing. And it's like joining a religious movement or political movement. The people who come to it late are the most earnest, the most serious about it. And I think a lot of those people were most into sticking it to the man, whereas the early people were most into making a buck. But those are the two goals. And they didn't really accomplish either one because I think most people individually lost money or I'd say as a group lost money. They sure didn't make a fortune. People will say, I made a fortune. Okay, fine. Of course, any main people made money on pets.com and all kinds of dumb stuff, right? But they also did not at all stick it to the man. Gabe Plotkin lost $6 billion for his investors and other people did too. But Wall Street writ large, they like this. They like it when people rush into the market. They like it when they think they're very smart and they can do things and they're active and they plow their savings into it. And in particular, this iteration of Wall Street, like Robinhood, they benefit not just from activity, but also from recklessness, which is a new twist. Spencer, you bring up a good point, And I know you've written about this, that Wall Street did get caught off guard. For Melvin Capital, very smart people to be blind by this and not appreciate and respect what was happening on Wall Street Bets and Reddit, it really hurt them and they were caught off guard. Archegos brokers were caught off guard. But I think at this point, it doesn't take long, to your point, for the institutional investors, hedge funds to smarten up. They are in those chat rooms. They've been in those chat rooms now for over 10 months. They're picking up what's going on and they're now making money on the up and the downside on these names. And I just don't think people realize that they're being used as mules to a degree is what has really happened here to the Reddit crowd. And it's happening. And stock prices are going down. will force this trade to end, unfortunately. Better for worse, and people will leave with a bad taste looking to blame somebody. But make no mistake, I think you talk about this. And if you could just talk about how quickly Wall Street figures things out before the retail investor can. Yeah, lickety-split. I won't name names because the conversations were on background, but there are people who are in this book who spoke to them just weeks after. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I get a report every day now. There's a company that does this. It's estimated that 85% of hedge funds on Wall Street subscribe to or have some service or have interns or have some natural language processing that goes through these boards and they can read it faster than you can. And they can tell the fake posts faster than you can. They can listen to a TikTok video even. I mean, they can do all this stuff and turn it into a script and get signals from it. So I think the one untold story here, and this I could not penetrate this. I tried. I mean, this will be a great story one day if somebody comes and figures it out, is to what extent they already were in the board months before the squeeze, because there are some savvy people who were advising them on exactly what to do. This is how you do a gamma squeeze. I think at the very least, there were some people who had experience on Wall Street and knew what they were doing, but it might have been more than that. A hundred percent. And I know Danny has more on this, but listen, I am certain the groups of people did really well. Hopefully they did really well. But to a large extent, they've been sacrificial lambs. And the fact that they believe in this misguided way, to Danny's point, as long as we continue to hold the stock, hold the line, it can't go lower. By definition, it has to go higher. That's really upsetting. But when you try to explain that, the vitriol that comes back is perplexing in a word, but disturbing is another word I'd use. Take a look at my Twitter mentions, man. I mean, that's what it is. That's the world we live in. I do get into that a bit. And I spoke to experts in social media and social psychology because a lot of the people in this story were attacked to the extent that they just said, I'm going to get out of this game or I'm not going to say anything publicly or they didn't want to put themselves out and say, hey, this is overvalued and whatever. And that's bad for the market at the end of the day. I'm not saying that short sellers are angels. They're in to make money just like everybody else, but they serve a very useful function. And if you're afraid of 
coming out with a short thesis because, you know, your kids are going to get menacing texts. That's crazy. That's terrible. How much is the SEC? I realize they don't want to intervene too much during times when they think that the retail investors getting access to things that normally is only set aside for institutional investors. But to let Robinhood go on like they did, for FINRA to let Robinhood go on like they did and only find them later, to give people the access to trade, one, in products that they didn't know what they were doing, but two, the ease to which they can kind of do this. And obviously, the perfect storm was COVID and the lockdown and people being at home and thinking they're doing research and being a part of something. Where do the regulators come in here? Because prior to you commenting on that, I read the SEC report, not the whole report, about the GameStop, and it was shit. It really didn't do anything to prevent this from happening again. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. The second part of your question. Yeah, the report is ridiculous. The most milquetoast conclusions. I think Gary Gensler is sincere about cleaning things up, but the SEC is a failure in protecting investors as an institution, generally speaking. They are always behind the ball. They come in later and FINRA is even more of a failure because it's a self-regulatory organization. And so that's why fleecing of investors is there. Now, I'm not saying that any of the companies I mentioned outright fleeced investors, but a lot of people on Wall Street do. And there are a lot of people who are outright fraudsters and they get away with murder. There are investigations that I've done at the Wall Street Journal where I've well in advance contact the SEC, point out what's happening, contact NASDAQ that is instrumental in this, point out what's happening. And they know exactly what I'm saying. They didn't do anything for months and months. And then after the fact, they come in and with the fine, that's less than the value of the money made in many cases. So it's really disappointing. At the time, one of the rallying cries for these Reddit traders on Robinhood, when things went sour a couple months after the frenzy in the spring, they were really focused on this idea of payment for order flow. Explain a little bit about what you learned about that, because it's something that's a widespread practice across Wall Street and many retail brokerage firms. And that's what they set their sights on a little bit. Some firms backed away from it. I know Fidelity, for instance, never had payment for order flow, but some other massive online brokers did. So I'm just really curious, where do we shake out with that? Because it seemed like that was the boogeyman for a while, but nothing's really changed a year on. It's funny, like it's this geeky thing nobody talked about and then everybody talked about all of a sudden and it was seen as this nefarious smoking gun thing and it isn't really. I mean, it's the way that $0 commissions in large part work. Robinhood would not be able to do what it does without payment for order flow, which is selling your orders. I don't see the practice as being especially bad or corrupt, especially the way that it's done. It seems to be done in a fairly transparent way to avoid abuse. The problem with it is that if you're Robinhood, your whole business is encouraging your customers to trade more. You don't want to deal as an individual saver and investor with somebody who makes money on the front end. You want to deal with somebody who makes money on the back end. You don't want somebody who wants you to be as active as possible because, and every single study shows this, the more often you check your investments, the more often you trade, the worse you do. And they are encouraging you through the design of the app and all kinds of other things and just their whole business model to be as active as possible. That's the real bad thing here in payment for order flow. And if they were making commissions, then yeah, they'd still want you to trade a lot more, but the people wouldn't trade 10,000 times a year, even if they had to pay five bucks because they don't have $55,000 in their account to lose paying commissions. So they would think about it more. But when you make something free, mentally, people just cross a Rubicon and they just don't think about it. And it's not free, of course. Nothing's free. Just to dovetail on that, as it relates to payment for order flow and back to your comments about you calling various regulators in Washington to ask them about a story or to look into something. A lot of people from the SEC leave and they go work on Wall Street or vice versa. That's a glass door. Also, they go get speaking engagements and so forth. We've seen a lot of people at the SEC move into 
roles at various market makers. But at the same time, how do you feel about people leaving Washington, as we call it, the Acela Corridor, K Street to Wall Street, we call it whatever. How do you feel about that? Because if you've written on it, I missed it. I'm sure you probably have. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I do mention in the book that Dan Gallagher went from the SEC to uh, Dan Gallagher is also the name of one of my columnists that heard on the street, no, no relation. Dan Gallagher went from the SEC to Robinhood. He got paid $30 million for less than a year's work at Robinhood. So that's what these companies do. I'm not saying that that's why the SEC, you bring some clear fraud to them and they just don't do anything or they're too busy or whatever. And like a multi-hundred million dollar frauds I'm bringing to them, things that clearly were hurting innocent investors. And it's not necessarily that they move on to a law firm or do whatever. There's no upside for them in doing something that's really difficult when they can do something that's really easy. And I think that it's a government bureaucracy. It doesn't work the right way. If something is just too difficult and too thorny and is going to bring too much blowback, they don't tackle it. They want something that's big and flashy. They want to announce a settlement and a fine, and they let things go on way too long. And then the other people who should be, I mean, NASDAQ, for example, should be protecting investors, right? They do all kinds of things to facilitate bad things happening from the companies they allow to list to all sorts of other things that I've seen and told them about and spelled out in no uncertain terms that they were quite well aware of. So, and then the revolving door in Washington, you kind of lawyer up and you get somebody to make sure that whatever bad thing you did, the fine that you have to pay or the punishment that you face isn't crippling. That's the name of the game. Spencer, as Dan will be quick to point out, next Thursday, I will be in the business for 72 years. So I've seen a lot go on over that time. But I would submit, and I'm curious to your thoughts, I happen to think the playing field for the retail investor has never been more level, more information they have access to, yet there's still this notion, maybe I'm wrong, but it's rigged against the little guy and gal. Can you speak to that? Well, there's an exchange in the book, and Dan, you make an appearance in the book, you probably saw. Mark Cuban came out during this whole episode and said, this is great, and all this information, and I love to see, I'm just paraphrasing, the house always wins, and hats off to them. Yeah, you're right. In one hand, you've got this device in your hand that's got all the world's information that you could look up anything you want. You can consult with people. You can see real-time prices. You can trade for almost free. All this stuff. And people are leaving as much money on the table as they were 20 or 40 years ago when trading was really expensive and you had to look up the price in the paper or ticker tape or whatever. So just the same way that there are vegetables and fruit available all year and you can look up any amount of information and students are just as dumb as they were then and they eat even unhealthier food than they used to eat then. I mean, you can provide people with things, but they're not going to do the right thing necessarily. And when it's in Wall Street's interest for you to do the wrong thing, pay too much, trade too much, et cetera, et cetera, then you're going to do it. So yeah, the playing field's level, but doesn't really translate into better results, unfortunately. Well, Spencer, we're really excited to read the book. I already have it in my possession. Everyone should go out and get it. And like you said, I totally forgot about this. Our friend, Helene Meisler, she sent me a little screenshot because I guess she had had a look at it. I was featured in this book, guys. It's not Michael Lewis, Danny, but we're going to take Spencer Jacob. And I think I used one of my favorite lines. I'm looking at it right here because I said, I think in response to Cuban's tweet, I said, I suspect when the dust settles from the impending mushroom cloud, high-frequency traders and option wholesalers, they'll be the real winners. They'll make the money on the way up and the way down. And in Vol, house always wins. Cheers to their success. But money ain't got no owners, only spenders. And that is obviously quoting Omar from The Wire. And the point, I think Guy made this on numerous occasions. Unless you kind of ring the register, you're not winning. It's that simple. And so that's what we're really perplexed. 
We had a guy on Fast Money the other day, a kid who's got a gazillion followers on YouTube, and he's still holding his GameStop and his AMC, and we're just looking at him like, why? And we're trying to be respectful, Spencer. So is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with about your experience of researching this book and now a year on with the thing? It's just over. It's done. I'll leave you with one thing. If you really want to stick it to the man and do well, there's a way right in front of you. So Guy, I mean, you said that playing field has never been more level and you're right. The way you stick it to the man is you basically pay Wall Street very little. You do very little. I know fast money, it's not the ethos there. I love fast money, but slow money is the wait for ordinary people to make money on Wall Street for 99% of people. Take it slow, take it easy, don't pay a lot. That was not possible 50 years ago. All those things, if you had bought stocks in 1926, is how much money you have? Like, no, you wouldn't because even just reinvesting dividends costs money. And today you can do that. So there it is. And Wall Street will hate you for it. It's interesting that you bring that up because Guy Oshrit reminiscences of a stock operator. So we really appreciate his musings on the markets. Just to be very fair on the fast money thing, I mean, the way I think about it is this. Everyone has hobbies and a lot of these people who have hobbies, they spend a lot of money to do them, whether it be travel, whether it be kite surfing, whether it be this. And so I think our audience is really interested in markets. They're interested in the action and we're just calling it like we see it for a lot of people who like to manage their own money. And so it's really not about short-term trading and how to get a near-term edge. It really is leveraging off our skill sets over the last couple decades or so, in Guy's case, a little longer and how to do that. So listen, Spencer, Jacob, we really appreciate you joining us. The book is The Revolution That Wasn't GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. It's out February 1st. You can get it wherever books are sold. Thank you, Spencer, for joining us on the tape. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.